Welcome to Soli Church. I'm Pastor John Mink, and this week I have the privilege of preaching out of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus gives us a picture of the kingdom. Enjoy. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, Soli. Morning. Luke 13, 18 through 20. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, Let's pray real quick. Father in heaven, we praise you and we glorify you. And Lord, even now, it is enough just the reading of your living word, knowing that it transforms us, Lord. Lord, I pray the power of your gospel would go forth today, the transformative power of the gospel, that Holy Spirit, that you'd be sanctifying us, and Lord, through the uh, broken, flawed man that I am, this broken vessel, Lord, through my weakness, you'd be made strong, that you would be glorified. Lord, that even now, the words that come out of my own mouth would be ministering to me. Lord, you'd be washing over us with your word. Lord, all authority comes from you, and it doesn't come from from me or a a title that I hold. Lord, from this podium, this, this elevation. But Lord, it comes from your word. And so we rely on that. Be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So over and over throughout Scripture, we see... Uh, kingdom mentioned. And if in the ESV, uh, kingdom is mentioned 126 times in the Gospels alone. And we hear Jesus time and time again say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's no question that the kingdom is a massive part of the ministry of Jesus here on earth. He says in Matthew 6 that we should be praying for the kingdom to come, right? The Lord's Prayer. But then in Luke 17, he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And at first, that sounds really confusing. How could something be in the midst of us, and yet we're supposed to be praying for the kingdom to come, right? But this is the the now and not yet kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. This is the mystery of the kingdom. And it's the mystery that Jesus speaks of in Mark 4 when he says, It has been revealed to you, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And so today we look at these three verses where Jesus is giving us a picture of the kingdom, what it looks like, and how he speaks truth to power. He turns our earthly wisdom on its head, and he turns the whole entire world right side up. If we look all the way back into Genesis, we see a picture of the kingdom. God's reigning on the earth, and he's reigning in the hearts of men. And it's not long into Genesis, right? That we see that we rebel against this, against this king. We rebel against this kingdom. We declare war on our perfect and good king who welcomed us into this kingdom. And in that moment that we did that, he would have been justified in waging war with us and blotting us out on the spot. But he didn't. Instead, he began to weave this complex and beautiful story together that would tell of how he would gather his bride, he'd reign in the hearts of them once again, and ultimately he'd reign on the earth once more and establish his kingdom completely. And so then throughout the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, through shadows and types, 
We see this story, this beautiful story unfolding, how the king is going to return and he's going to establish this kingdom. Now, the, the return of the king and the return of this kingdom is the worst kept secret in all of history. It's telegraphed all throughout history. And yet, when Jesus, Jesus shows, shows up on the scene, Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, when he shows up, nobody can recognize it because he doesn't come. And it doesn't look like the way any of us or any of them expected, right? And so we find Jesus giving us examples and pictures of what the kingdom looks like that really just fly in the face of our preconceived ideas. And even now, we fall into that. So here in Luke 13, we see Jesus comparing the kingdom to a mustard seed and to leaven. But not only is the comparison interesting, but where he's saying this and who he's saying this to paints a broader picture of the message that Jesus is trying to get across. And if you go back, the scene is set in verse 10. So the scene is, Jesus is teaching. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he sees this woman. And this woman has been doubled over in pain, some kind of physical ailment where she can't stand up straight. And she's been suffering with this for 18 years. And Jesus sees her and he calls her over. And in a moment, one moment, changes everything for her and heals her right there on the spot. Now, you cannot tell me that Jesus doesn't like to stir the pot every once in a while. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he's doing this, that he's healing this woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's stirring the pot here. And though her response to this is great, to glorify God and thank him for what he's done for her, the response of the synagogue ruler is quite the opposite. Listen to this guy. It's super frustrating to read this, even now. The, the arrogance. Keep in mind, so this woman has been suffering for 18 years, and in this class system at the time, everybody knows her. They've seen her. This woman has been suffering day after day after day. They all know who she is. She's the outcast. She's on the outskirts. She's a nobody. She's a no-name hurting for 18 years, and then in a moment, that's all lifted. How great. And look what this guy says. With indignation. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. And I want to knock that dude out. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on here, right? This guy's reacting out of anger, because his power, his clout, his swag, his position just got taken out in a moment by this wanderer from Nazareth. And notice that Jesus calls the woman over in the passage. This woman doesn't initiate this scene that's happening here. Jesus does. But yet this tyrant, after getting his pride checked, he takes it out on her, right? He takes it out on the people. And he tells her to come any other day, but don't come on the Sabbath. Come any other day to be healed. The guy who's doing none of the healing is dictating when people should be coming to be healed or not. Thank the Lord Jesus that he responds. And he doesn't respond quietly. He says, you hypocrites. 
And he goes on to tell him, you'll untie your ox or your donkey on the Sabbath to lead it to go get a drink of water. But yet, this daughter of Abraham, this child of God, this precious one who you've watched suffer for 18 years, she can't be untied from the chains that have bound her on the Sabbath, but your donkey and your oxen can? I think verse 17, what immediately follows that, is so key to setting the stage uh, for a lot of this verse. It says, And as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done. You see what's happening here? You have the haves and the have-nots. You have the popular and you have the unpopular. You have the powerful and you have the weak. You have the righteous and you have the unrighteous. You have the in-crowd and you have the outcast. This scene reminds me of nearly every teen movie that's ever been created in all of history. That there's these nerds, these losers, who are terrorized all school year long by the jock, the bully, the tough guy group. And they just reluctantly accept their lot in life that I'm just a nerd, I'm just a loser, and this is my life, that I just have to suffer under this tyrant. Until one day, right, towards the end of the movie, typically, one of them, somebody, has enough. And there's this huge scene, probably at a house party, is typically where it happens. Somehow they land at a house party together, and some kid pops the biggest, baddest dude square in the nose. And somehow all the bullies go running, and all the nerds and all the losers on the outskirts are like, yeah! It's like freedom. Everybody has freedom now, right? Jesus is just pop this guy, pop these powerful who have been reigning over these people, and all the people on the outskirts who have been suffering under this are cheering. It's in the middle of this scene that Jesus tells us and gives us a picture of what the kingdom looks like. He says the, king, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed and like leaven. And they're both such small and unassuming things. And we would never expect anything great, anything substantial to come from either one of them. But isn't that how we see the kingdom described all throughout Scripture? Matthew 20, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And perhaps one of my favorite, maybe the greatest example of this is Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 52, we have the proclaiming of the good news, right? That our king has won, that the exiles can go home, that we are set free. That's where we have Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who bring the good news. The good news that our king has come, the Messiah has come, and he's conquered, and we are now free. And so we celebrate, and we're looking, as we read on, we look on to see what does this king look like, and he doesn't look anything like what we expected. Isaiah 53 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the picture of our king. Not what we pictured, right? Jesus has brought the kingdom through the power of the gospel. And though it doesn't look like much, this mustard seed or this shoot out of dry ground, it moves and it moves in power. And just as the meekness of the kingdom surprises us, uh, surprises us with the power that it possesses, we're shocked at, at how it moves and how powerful this, this little thing is. We don't expect it to be small, and yet this small thing then moves with such great power that we're shocked. Jesus has brought the good, the good news of the gospel and his kingdom continues to spread through the power of this gospel. We see this in Colossians 1. It tells us the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. That this gospel is still spreading and it's still growing in you and it's still spreading. This kingdom is spreading through the power of the gospel. Or in 1 Thessalonians 1, the gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction that it's powerful. Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And this kingdom, though it has its start in a little backwater town of Bethlehem, pouring into a group of young fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots, covering a span of only a few years, only to see its king murdered on a thief's cross, wields a power unseen in all of creation. And yet with all its power, as we read these verses, and with all its promises, we're so quick to abandon it, right? We think that if we can only get the politician saved, if we can only get the pop star saved, if we can only get the high school quarterback saved or the head cheerleader saved, that then this transformative power would trickle down from the powerful down to the no-names and the nobodies. That's not the picture the scriptures give us, right? Though these people need the gospel, just like all of us do, Scripture tells us that this power doesn't come from the powerful, but the power comes from the least likely places, the places you would never expect it. Paul says this really well in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God that your faith wouldn't rest in the popularity of the one bringing it, of the eloquence of the one bringing it, and the clout of the one bringing it, but your faith would rest in the power of the gospel. Do you realize how free that makes me specifically right in this moment? I don't have to be slick. I don't have to be funny. 
I don't have to be eloquent. I don't need a gimmick. I don't need a degree. I can stand here, and though I prepped, and though I, I work hard, it's, it's a joy in my heart, but my, my hope in that there's anything in this message does not rely in me, in my history, and what I have to bring to the table. My hope relies in, and all throughout prepping for this, it was joyful going through this. My hope is in the power of the gospel. That as I teach the power of the gospel, things are happening that I can't explain, that are greater than the sum of its, this, this message is greater than the sum of its parts. This frees us as people. And not to get off, top, off topic real, real quick here, this is why we have the young ones in service with us. It's one of the reasons why we have the young ones in service with us. Not only do we see in the Gospels that when the adults are talking to Jesus and the little ones come, and they shoo them away like, hey, we're doing the adult things here. Kids, go away. Jesus scolds them and says, hey, bring the little ones to me. The kingdom, the kingdom that I'm talking about, constantly the kingdom belongs to these ones, right? Not only that, but if we trust and we know that the power relies not in our ability to communicate, that the power relies lies in the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, then who am I? Who are we? to say that the Holy Spirit can only reach and impact those who are 13 and older. Right? In this moment, I am stoked that my little 10-month-old, who's looking at my little 2-year-old and goofing around, Daxton, <laughs> that... Oh, sad guy. I love you, bud. Uh, that, that as I'm declaring the gospel... Though we go home and little 10-month-old breaker does not articulate the gospel back to me, I know that there is power in the gospel through the Holy Spirit working and that somehow the Lord is working in, in my little kids, in your kids, in you. And the gospel is working in me. That somehow me being a broken vehicle, I'm being ministered through this. God is awesome. It's incredible. So this frees us, this power that doesn't rely on us, it, it frees us to be the priesthood of believers that we're supposed to be, right? We want people here at Soli Church. We want them to be hearing the gospel daily. But let me be clear, you do not need to bring someone here to church to spread the kingdom. You are the priesthood of believers. You are free to spread the gospel in power. David, Nate, Noise, and myself do not hold the keys to this power. This isn't for us, the chosen few. This is for all of us. You may wish you had the booming voice and eloquent speech of David Deutsch. You may wish you had the, the good looks and the wit of Nate Stead. It's amazing. <laughs> you may wish you had the reasoning, the ability to debate the thinking mind of John Noyes. And I praise the Lord for the giftings that are in these men. But guess what? Power does not reside in those things. Amen. The power resides in the preaching of the gospel. And so we all operate in our giftings, thanking the Lord for them, 
as he leads us into different avenues and different lanes of life. But we take the gospel everywhere. And the gospel is where the power is. It's not in us individually. So with that being said, you are, you are free, Christian, to take the gospel to your school, to take it to your workplace, to take it to your family, to feast on it yourself and be full. And know that as you take this to your workplace, to your school, to your family, trust, as Scripture declares, that the kingdom is expanding and it's moving. And though it may be small and you may not see it all the time, we know that the gospel is powerful and it's spreading and it's growing. And not only can we rest in knowing that in our weakness his power is made perfect, but that this seemingly weak message of grace is actually the message that will change lives. The religious leaders in the day thought that the power resided in the law. And so they'd wield the law like a whip to try to keep people in line. And we do the same thing to ourselves and to other people, don't we? We think that we can cause lasting change in our own lives or in someone else's lives by pointing them to the law and showing them how they need to line up, get it together. And though fear will change some of us for a moment, for a season, operate out of fear. The law can't change us because the law in itself has no transformative power. It can't transform us. The law is that mirror that we look into that points us to our need of the gospel. It points us to our need of Jesus, of a Savior to come and stand in our place. And whenever we lead with the gospel, we stifle real growth. You know, no seed ever grew any faster by someone screaming at it or showing it a picture of what the tree that it's supposed to look like finally in the end. But it grows slowly, right? It's nurtured. It's fed over and over, and then it grows. Christian, you were called by the good news of the gospel. You are sustained by the good news of the gospel. You are complete in the good news of the gospel. Rest, rejoice bask in that good news, knowing that as you feast on Christ, the natural reaction of that is an outpouring of this gospel to the people around you. That joy will become so deep. It won't be a duty that you have to fill to, oh, I didn't witness to anybody today. It will be pouring out of your life, this good news of the gospel. And now the insignificant size and the unexpected power of the gospel described as this mustard seed and this leaven at this point seems probably pretty obvious. But there's another picture that I want to unpack here that I think is being painted that's a little less obvious to us. This isn't the first time that we've seen leaven in Scripture. We've actually seen it quite a bit. And it's almost exclusively used in a negative context. Likewise, mustard, though it had some uh, medicinal plant and some value as a spice, it was really hard to control. And so for most, it was considered a weed. It was something to be disposed of. And then even more, birds weren't considered pets. Birds were a nuisance that would eat your seed and, and eat your crop. 
If you just look back a few chapters, Luke 8, the story of the, the parable of the sower, right? So you had the weeds who choked it out, and then you also had the birds who ate it up. So the, to the people that Jesus is telling this to, not only is it shocking at the size and the scope of the kingdom, but it doesn't even look desirable. It's things that, it's the undesirable things. It's things that I don't even know if I want. And so the rulers, they have everything to gain from this, this hierarchy, this kingdom that they've built with them at the top. And they have everything to lose by Jesus toppling that kingdom over, right? They have everything to lose by grace coming on the scene. And then Jesus speaks of this kingdom, and this kingdom is full of the undesirables, the outcasts, the losers, the misfits, the vagrants. And these people who are considered the pests, like the birds, considered the pests of society, will come and they'll rest in the branches of this kingdom, is what Jesus is saying. And as this synagogue ruler scolds this woman, this outcast, from his self-righteous pedestal, Jesus declares that the kingdom is going to be full of people just like her. Which then begs the question, you wonder what's going through the minds of these religious elite at the time. It begs the question, if hearing that description of the kingdom, they want anything to do with it at all. Ooh, I'm going to be fraternizing with them. The kingdom is going to be full of those dirty people. Of those broken people, Ugh, I don't know if I'm, that wasn't the kingdom I signed up for. I wonder what's going through his head at the time. Christian, this is the greatest news that we could ever hear. And I'll tell you why. That the God of all creation outside of space and time has formed us out of dust. And then he breathes life into us. And not only that, but then he chose to be close to us, to have relationship with us. And yet, us, this dust, we declare war on our king. And in the moment, in that moment that we rebelled, we're broken to our core. There's no amount of good deeds, no amount of law keep, keeping that we could ever do to reconcile that chasm that lay between us. Even our good works, the stuff that we look around and see and say, oh man, that's awesome. Even that stuff, it's filthy. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing good. And so Jesus comes and he lives the life that we should have lived but never could. And he dies, dies the death that we should have died, but he spares us from. And it's this gift of grace that we believe through faith has set us free in the finished work of Christ. And our nature, hearing that message, our nature pushes back against that message so hard every day because that message robs us of anything that we can hang our hat on, right? We want to find security in good works. We want to find security in our law giving. We want to cling to them that these things are a type of security blanket that deceivingly tell us that somehow God owes us something because I've stacked up these good works. The gospel strips us bare of all of that. 
It strips us of pride. It strips us of arrogance, of self-reliance, of a position that we think we hold. And though it's uncomfortable, and David pointed out last week, we grasp at these fig leaves of good works to constantly try to cover ourselves up. The gospel is completely ripping those things away and burying us naked. And it's because the gospel has stripped us bare. Jesus then takes us and he says, these losers, these broken, these outcasts, these wounded, the scared, the anxious, the sick, the marginalized, the abandoned, the tired, the restless. And he says to them, to us, he says, my kingdom is for you. My kingdom is full of people just like you. Come and rest in my kingdom, on the branches of my kingdom. So Christian, rest in him, knowing that through the power of the gospel, his kingdom is being established in the hearts of his people, that he's gathering his bride. And though it may not look like much at times, he's expanding. The kingdom is growing. And trust and know that us, this ragtag group here, us, with all our faults, with all our failures that we have right now, that even now you're uncomfortable thinking about, that Jesus says, my kingdom is for you. I have paid for you. Come rest in my kingdom. My kingdom is full of people just like you. And like the woman who came bowing because of chains, because of sorrow, because of hurt, we have been healed. So let us continue to bow out of gratitude, out of love, out of thankfulness for a king who has freed us in spite of all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, and has welcomed us into this kingdom and said, rest. Rest, guys. Rest. I was perfect for you. Rest. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you doesn't cut it, and, but it's the words that we know, so we th say thank you over and over and over and over again. Lord, in the moments where we, go, we grow prideful in our righteousness and our good works. We praise you for your soft hand that comes in and corrects us and reminds us that the good news of what you've done for us robs us of anything to brag about. The Lord even more so reminds us of how great a love you showed for us. Lord, may we never graduate from the gospel. May it never become mundane, old, sterile, a thing of the past that, that got us in the door, but we abandoned. But Lord, would the gospel be for daily digestion of your people, realizing that it's you who's done the work, the one who has paid for us, and Lord, in our weakness is where you are made strong. Lord, that we can stop striving to be this great person should try to earn your love, to try to earn our place in the church, to try to earn our place in the kingdom. For Lord, we can rest in knowing that you've done it for us and that we come to the kingdom to rest. 
to know that we're loved. Lord, cause that to be true in my life, in all of our lives. And Lord, may we declare that gospel over each other to lift each other up for your glory, for the expanse of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Come worship with us every Sunday morning at 10.50 a.m. For information, visit solelychurch.com, S-O-L-I church.com. We hope to see you soon. Soli Deo Gloria.